0: At the end of these kind of informal, psychedelic mock therapy sessions I've had with friends, we often kind of reflect the next day and say, yeah, yeah, the substance certainly helped, but also, how often do we just devote an entire day to not thinking about work and setting this intention of doing the deep, personal inner
1: work? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, once again, we're doing something a little bit different. Our guest is Chris Van Loan II, Content Director for Entrepreneurs and founder of VanLoneFilm.co. Chris is also the host of the podcast, Podcast People with Chris Van Loan, in which he gave this podcast, Field Tripping, an 11 out of 10 review. Now, as a bit of a marketer myself, I not only appreciated the thoughtful commentary Chris offered about the podcast and psychedelics, but also how effective a way it is to get people like me to pay attention to the work he does, who doesn't love a good dose of flattery every once in a while. So much so that Chris and I had breakfast together when I was in Austin for South by Southwest and the conversation went from podcast to some very interesting and thoughtful places, which I'd like to explore today. But before we do that, let's give a listen to the episode of Podcast People about field tripping, which is just about 10 minutes long, so won't take up too much of your time.
0: Let's go on a field trip, shall we? To hear about epic personal, spiritual, and business journeys on and in psychedelics. Hey, podcast people. This is one um, that I haven't known quite how to talk about, to be honest. Field Tripping with Ronan Levy is a podcast all about psychedelic therapy. It's about the role psychedelic drugs such as LSD, psilocybin, ketamine, MDMA and more have had in people's lives, and how, as a global society, there has been a massive renewed interest in how these substances can help people who suffer from PTSD, depression, and anxiety, as well as help in the betterment of well people, healthy normals, as they're called in a clinical context. And I've listened to every single episode of this show just about. It is one of my absolute favorites. So, spoiler alert, you can probably guess how I'm going to rate this show by the end of the episode. But I'm also realizing that it's been like four months since I've done a podcast review. And I really miss doing these. I've been busy with work, and I've interviewed some people on the show, and I've gone on some other people's podcasts to be interviewed. But talking about this particular show has been on my to-do list week after week after week for, seriously, like 120 days or so. And I've been feeling like I have this writer's block or podcast block. And I guess that's because to talk about this show honestly and authentically the way I really want to would mean divulging, confessing to some of my own experiences and why this show has been so important to me. You know, psychedelics are still pretty stigmatized, so it feels a bit like a coming out of the closet moment. Even though in the circles I run in professionally, this is like the biggest open secret there is. Everyone is using these compounds for their own spiritual exploration, and personal growth and development. I've been producing Ryan Moran's podcast for five years now, and he's talked very openly on the show about his experiences with magic mushrooms and taking ayahuasca multiple times, which contains the active ingredient DMT, aka the spirit molecule. And I'm now the podcast producer for a new show that just launched called The Brave Table with Dr. Nita Bushan, And she's talked openly about how her psychedelic experiences helps her process the death of family members and move through grief and past domestic violence. You know, I've filmed events with Aubrey Marcus, and I've met him multiple times, a huge psychedelic proponent, as well as Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan and Lex Freeman, all of whom now live here in my home city of Austin. I mean, I've lived in Austin for 30, maybe over 30 years now. I've been here since 1991. But anyway, all of these big, massive influencers in the entrepreneur space, in the science space, in the spiritual world, have all talked openly about the benefits and breakthroughs from their trips. It's almost become kind of a cliche now for me when I go to entrepreneur events and masterminds, business conferences and workshops. The question is, okay, how long can we go before someone brings up psychedelics? <laughs> you know, And then inevitably, in one or two days or in a couple of hours, someone is sharing their recent trip and their breakthrough, and, you know, they have to tell everyone about it. And what I'm saying is, In many circles, there is still a lot of taboo around this area. But in the world of entrepreneurship, everyone has a few stories to tell. But it's also been really exciting to see this conversation become more mainstream. Anyone and everyone can always watch the new documentary called Fantastic Fungi on Netflix with Paul Stamets. It's all about mushrooms magic mushrooms, and their potential use for therapy. And it's really cool how they actually show people in that documentary going through sessions of professional psychedelic-assisted therapy. On Hulu, there's a show called Hamilton's Pharmacopia, where documentarian Hamilton Morris dives into the history and usage and chemistry of psychedelics. Really awesome show. And in the literary world, Michael Pollan's last two books, How to Change Your Mind and This Is Your Mind on Plants, have really done a lot to destigmatize these drugs. Because Pollan is a 67-year-old serious journalist who never wrote about or really investigated these things until quite recently. So he lends a lot of credibility to something that many still see as fringe, or new-agey, or even just dangerous. So there's a lot of buzz about psychedelics right now. But one of the things that makes this show different is that our wise host Ronan Levy is the co-founder and executive chairman of a publicly traded company, Field Trip, which trades under FTRP on the NASDAQ and Field Trip, the company, is a growing business which facilitates psychedelic assisted therapy experiences all over the world Toronto, LA, New York, Seattle, Atlanta. They even have a location here in Texas, in Houston. So, currently, because of the laws and all, they can only use ketamine in the state that I'm in. But from what Ronan talks about pretty openly on the podcast, They're trying to build the framework around these experiences so that when something like MDMA or psilocybin becomes rescheduled from being Schedule 1 drugs at the U.S. federal level, they can start using those other compounds as well. But you know, the reason people use these drugs is because they consistently work and get results. I remember when someone described a guided therapeutic MDMA session as being like, five years of therapy in one night. And I said, sign me up, of course. But and before the recent prohibition, these things had been commonly used by therapists. And before that, many indigenous cultures have used some of these compounds for hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. I know for me personally, I'm not the same person I was three or four years ago. And I have to credit MDMA specifically with helping me grow and move past my own traumas here. They say set and setting is everything with these experiences, and it's true. There's the importance of your location, you know, the room you're in, the music, who you're with during a psychedelic trip, but there's also your mindset, right? Your intention and the intention of I'm going to take this drug and have fun and dance and party and and listen to music is a vastly vastly different mindset than saying I'm going to lay down, see what comes up, you know, explore some topics that I've really been struggling with and let myself open up and talk to a close friend or a professional. And what I want to tell people from the outside looking in, to people with no experience here, is that your mental health can be potentially fixed and permanently improved. Not treated, not mitigated, I mean fixed. Permanently. There are just now so many documented cases, stories now of veterans with PTSD who have healed from their mental health struggles after just one or two or three sessions. I think we live in a world where we often band-aid over symptoms, right? We medicate away what's on the surface instead of getting to the root of our problems. And psychedelic therapy can really help with that. Getting to the root lets you see that the mental patterns that haven't been serving you can be changed. And the bad things that may have happened to you in the past aren't still happening. And you don't have to live in fear anymore. The way Michael Pollan describes it is like this. There's this saying, right, that neurons that fire together, wire together. And as we move through life and establish patterns and habits, those neurons in our brain build thicker and thicker connections. They build deeper grooves. And he says to imagine this, like, skiing down a slope right? The previous skiers have left some pretty deep grooves, so it's easiest to just fall into the path of least resistance and go with the patterns laid down before you in the present moment. But these drugs can metaphorically lay down a fresh coat of powder. An ability to temporarily wipe the slate clean of our preconceived notions and say, oh, maybe I'll go in this direction. I've been going left when presented with this particular challenge my whole life. What would it look like if I just went right instead? What would it look like if I let go of these thought loops that are holding me back or are unproductive? It's an ability to zoom out and see your entire life from a safe, removed, and objective perspective. And I also want to state very clearly here, I am not in any way advocating that you personally use any of these substances. Seriously, there are real dangers involved and that's what Field Trip the company exists to do is to create safe spaces with trained medical professionals to facilitate these experiences. But I am advocating for you to dive in and educate yourself on this stuff to learn about it because to me at least This is totally fascinating. I mean, we're talking about consciousness and chemistry and culture and history and mental health and how all these fields intertwine in our human experience. So, whether you're entirely new to this realm or you've already gone deep down the psychedelic rabbit hole, this is the perfect podcast to learn more and hear from some of the most interesting voices in this space of psychedelic therapy. You've got episodes with the author Michael Pollan himself, two episodes with Rick Doblin from MAPS, the biggest nonprofit research organization in this space. You've got artists Alex and Allison Gray, and the biohacker Ben Greenfield talking about his experience, and all these amazing guests, but You know, I will give you one recommendation if you're looking for a place to start. There's an episode called The Hippies Were Right with Dr. Julie Holland, MD, a psychopharmacologist, psychiatrist, and author who's dedicated her career to psychiatric wellness as an influential advocate for psychedelic medicine. And she says that after all her years of exploring this field of study, that in many ways, the hippies actually had a lot figured out. We're all one. We're all connected. Love is all you need. Our egos get in the way of our own happiness and evolution. Now, of course, we also may remember that time period of the hippies, remember the psychedelic 60s, as naive now and idealistic and wild and crazy And to that, our host, Ronan Levy, shares this quote from one of his favorite authors, Tom Robbins. Like the Arthurian years at Camelot, the 60s constituted a breakthrough, a fleeting moment of glory, a time when a significant little chunk of humanity briefly realized its moral potential and flirted with its neurological destiny, a collective spiritual awakening that flared brilliantly until the barbaric and mediocre impulses of the species drew tight once more the curtains of darkness. Now, I believe we are living through the beginning of another psychedelic renaissance, one where we'll be more careful this time, more responsible, hopefully good stewards of these very powerful substances. And I also can't recommend the episode Black Therapists Rock with Darren Young highly enough where she talks about healing issues directly connected to Black Americans and generational trauma. There are just so many great episodes to choose from. So check out an episode title that really grabs you and dive in. And I guess there's nothing left to do now but give this show a, and this is a podcast people first, an exclusive for this show. I'm going to give Field Tripping, an 11 out of 10 review. Because it's just that good. That important for helping you become the greatest vision you've ever had about who you really are. And a show that illuminates some powerful tools for a world that deeply needs some help in the realm of mental health. So I hope you'll check it out. And I just want to say thank you for all the people that have interacted with me and left me reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify since I've been doing this show. Without you, there'd be no podcast people. All right, y'all. Keep expanding your mind. Take a walk on the wild side. And I'll catch you on the next one.
1: All right. All right. Well, thanks everyone for giving a listen to that episode of Podcast People. Chris, welcome to Field Tripping. And my first question for you is, how on earth did you discover Field Tripping and what inspired you to listen to it in the first place? Yeah, thank you so much for
0: for having me on the show, Ronan. Um, You know, it was a bit of kind of serendipity or synchronicity where I'll never forget I was leaving the grocery store and I actually got served an ad on Spotify. It was like a 30-second ad. And I was like, I had my shopping cart, and I was in the parking lot. And I just caught psychedelic therapy experiences, business. And I was like, it was hitting all of the, the trigger button kind of words for me. And I just like stopped right there, searched field tripping, and probably found an episode uh, that sounded interesting. It may have been like a Michael Pollan or, um, you know, Rick Doblin or something. And then just became, it's become like my favorite show. And I've listened to every episode and um, it just kind of feels like this this hidden gem that I wish more people knew about.
1: Well, thank you, thank you for listening to it. I hope you didn't drop your eggs in the grocery store. Uh, And I'm glad to hear that some (laughs) of our Spotify ads did work. I, I really like to, to hear that. Um, you know, it's one of those things that I'm still super self-conscious about because I have no idea why, in the, why on earth anyone would want to listen to anything that I have to say. Uh, so when people do stop and listen, it, it really is quite flattering because it is deep down somewhat surprising to me. Um, but take me through the next step. So you start listening to it. And, and what gave you the idea to be like, I'm going to record a podcast review of field tripping. You know, how, how does that connect the dots? So
0: I first started my show, Podcast People, because at a certain point, it became more difficult for me not to make the show because all of my personal conversations with friends and family were just, hey, I got to tell you about this amazing podcast I just listened to. It was becoming like, my friends are like, okay, 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 like you're the podcast guy. Can we talk about something else? And so it was like this outlet, right? Where in my work... I am amplifying the voices of others working with entrepreneurs and brands. Like when I gave a review of this show, I wish I had talked a little bit more about you and what you're bringing to this show as a host. But this particular show, it was, it was more like a coming out moment, right? Because in a lot of ways, there is still so much stigma I was also someone who bought into that that story, of you know I never smoked weed until I was 22 years old. I thought it was gonna kill your memory and make you stupid and make
1: you a loser. No, just having kids and uh, not sleeping for a few years will kill your memory and make you a loser. So very different than we. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. Please continue. No, well,
0: we can we can dive into this this kind of origin story more. But it's you know started experimenting with. LSD and mushrooms from the these early years of like, you know, 24, 25. And that was profound in changing my perspective of kind of like reality and energy and and just like what it means to be human. And then it wasn't really until I turned 30 and revisited these things from the mindset of therapy and working through childhood trauma and self-improvement and personal development. And I just, I feel like an entirely different person than I was a couple of years ago. So when I found your podcast, it felt like I kind of found my tribe in a sense, right?
1: You said your first experience with psychedelics were in your kind of early twenties uh, and you put them down uh, and then pick them up again, I guess in your early thirties. Take me through that. I, I was like you. I didn't, I didn't drink until I was 20, 21, something like that. I, I never really uh, used cannabis at all um, until I got into the cannabis industry. Even now it's, it's only infrequent um, simply so because I don't quite like the feeling. So we, we share that path of being a fairly late bloomers to the world of psychotropic substances. But yeah, t- take me through that.
0: Yeah, I I feel like in those early days, if I'm being completely honest, it was that I had gotten bored with weed. I was looking for the next high. I was looking to experiment. I almost feel like I had like nothing to lose in the early days, right? It's like, let's see what is possible. Let's see what's out there. And, you know, in, in my strongest trip of my whole life, it's really interesting how these compounds can be so anti-addictive and habit-forming. Um, I'd had a, a handful of experiences, and then and then one day I had like two and a half tabs of LSD, so like 250 micrograms. To this day, that was nine years ago, still the strongest uh, trip of my life. It was like Oh, God, it was like a 17-hour trip, all-nighter kind of thing. That's a commitment. Where you just completely, yeah, you lose all sense of time and experienced ego death and self. So, I forgot that my name is Chris, that I'm African-American, that I am a male. I almost, like, kind of got beyond the point of language and where I begin and end and the atoms in the room and my friend. It's all kind of swirling together together. And I'll never forget, I had this moment where me and my girlfriend at the time, we were kind of sitting down knee to knee and meditating. And we we touched foreheads and we went like forehead to forehead together. And we both saw this kind of like dark blue and light blue waves of light kind of like rippling off of each other. Like uh, like two dolphins in the water, you know? And one of the things that's hard to express to people is it's so much less about what you see and it's more about like what you feel. Like I felt like I was that light, that energy, right? And the kind of soul to soul connection we had just looking into each other's eyes was so deep and profound. And yet it was also such a powerful experience that I didn't feel the need to really revisit it for a couple of years. I think a lot of people kind of like go like, wow, okay, we're going to put that in a box and we're going to go back to living our normal life. (laughs) You know, one of the things I haven't discussed, I haven't heard that much discussed on this podcast is how much there is an underground movement of people who are kind of reverse engineering the therapy protocols by organizations like MAPS and like Field Trip. You know, you can, you can Google a uh, MAPS MDMA kind of therapy protocol of best practices. And so as I started working closer with entrepreneurs, you know, like I mentioned in my, in my podcast, it just became apparent this is something everyone is doing from that perspective of growth, of dealing with trauma, Right. And so I found myself, you know, going through a couple of sessions that with kind of a mock therapist or someone who is just a trip sitter. And I've facilitated a couple of experiences, everything from 22 year old woman to 55 year old man, and everything in between, just holding that space for them. And maybe they write down a couple of questions they want to be asked, and we dive into that. But, you know, the, the, the big thing for me, and part of the reason I, I became so passionate about this space is, you know, I hadn't really come to terms with the sexual assault that had happened to me in my childhood, right? So when I was six years old, I was molested multiple times uh, by an older boy. And, and it's the kind of thing where, honestly, it's amazing how how well the mind can kind of adjust and shove things down and become accustomed to anything and normalize it. So here I am at 30 years old and I'm saying like, I'm fine, whatever. That's just something that happened. And it's like, is it really okay? And MDMA showed me that I actually had a lot to process and I needed to have those conversations with my parents. And I needed to be put in that safe space where I could realize what had happened to me is no longer happening to me and doesn't have to dictate my life anymore, right? So, it was really just a a handful of intentional MDMA experiences that just completely changed my whole life around depression, around anxiety, around trying to build healthy relationships. So that's kind of the personal reason why, you know, I care so much about this space because I know that there's a lot of healing that needs to be done worldwide around all kinds of trauma, right? I mean, I've had other breakthroughs, right? Where I remember in one trip, I'm laying there, laying in bed. I have the weighted blanket over me. I'm wearing a blindfold listening to some music. And it's so funny how sometimes the things that come up aren't what you wanted to work on in the session. You're like, oh, I thought we were going to be dealing with this. Oh, this thing has just totally come out of left field. Like, And I remember seeing my mom and dad kind of hunched over the dinner table, looking at their checkbook, balancing their checkbook and being worried about how they're gonna pay the mortgage. And I, I could see my own face and the impression that had on me and what was modeled to me. And there were all these kind of things that were, I had taken in as this idea that work is a burden and it's not supposed to be fun. And being an adult is stressful. And my parents are sacrificing a lot for me and what that kind of did to me, right? So being able to revisit these kind of experiences with clarity, with like a safe, objective, third person kind of zoomed out perspective has just been completely game-changing to me. And to be frank, it's also kind of the kind of thing that like, I don't know if I ever even
1: need to do again. First of all, thank you for sharing that. That was, I I was not expecting um, the conversation to go there uh, or like that level of vulnerability. Um, So I really, really appreciate you going there. And I'm very sorry to hear about those experiences. Um, And I'm also, um, I, I don't even know what the word is, relieved, excited, glad that you had the opportunity to work through them you know with mdma without mdma it doesn't really matter um but you know that's exactly exactly what we're doing here um so so thank you for being so so open and vulnerable there i really appreciate it that's the those are the stories that touch people because there's probably a lot more chris van loan the seconds up there uh with somewhat similar experiences who were the same way, which was like and I'm certainly one of them, not the same experiences of like I'm fine and, and powering through until you realize no, you're you're not fine. <laughs> you're putting on a, a very good mask, um, and you're holding on to it, but it takes a lot of effort and energy. Um Yeah, I, I remember through.
0: my f- My first time in New York City, I was completely blown away by the size and scope of it. And we were there to meet Gary Vaynerchuk and do some filming with him in his office. And I found myself having these thoughts about these things that happened to me as a child and how it's affected me. And I'm like, why is my mind going here? I should be thinking about all of this other stuff. And the kind of transformation I've experienced is so night and day I like to describe myself now as a formerly depressed person. And I know that kind of sounds like I'm like tempting fate because I know what it's like to have an anxiety attack and then not have any anxiety attacks for four years and then have another anxiety attack come out of nowhere. But I do know that I'm like never going to go back to that dark of a place as I was as someone who was you know, kind of engaging in suicidal ideation uh, daily from, you know, six years old to, you know, maybe 20 years old, right? And the other kind of crucial ingredient that's made me who I am today is podcasts. So, I'm kind of on the purpose, uh, the perfect show right now. (laughs) But, right, there's the psychedelic component of growth, but there's also listening to personal development podcasts like Tim Ferriss, like shows like yours, that really changed my perspective of becoming less pessimistic, less cynical, and seeing all of the opportunities happening in the world, right? Like with Tim Ferriss, he's not like this rah-rah kind of like, you know, Tony Robbins kind of guy. He's pretty chill and laid back like myself. But... When you listen to podcasts as a practice weekly for years and years and years, it is this process of really rewiring your brain after decades of negativity. You really have to almost brainwash yourself intentionally with positive messages,
1: yeah, absolutely. And that's a great reminder um that and I want to explore this a little bit more. but, in any path into this, we we'll you say, psychedelics as the example, it's, it really is just opening the door and starting a process. It's, it, it, most of the time is not doing the work. It may do a little bit of the work for you, but it's what you do with the awareness, you know, and the, and the realizations, the moment when you looked at your parents' faces, you know, and, and realized that you took that on somehow, um, you know, or absorbed part of that, um, is, is. That's just the start. It's it's a big step, you know. It's it's a catalyst, but it really is only the start. And and, and that's one of the questions I have for you, which is, who with these awarenesses? How did you how did you move forward? I mean, we talk about therapy, and I think therapy is absolutely the wrong word. I think therapy can be a useful tool in the integration process, but I think a lot of people conflate therapy for integration. Integration is the, the lifelong process of doing it. Therapy just gives you some tools to maybe expand on it. Um, so I'm curious to know, like, what, what did you do with those awarenesses? Did you have a conversation with your parents about this kind of stuff? Did you not? How, how, did, how did you translate that from awareness to change?
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because so many of the changes that come about with psychedelics can be very subtle and non-obvious to someone on the outside looking in right? Someone might kind of see me externally and be like, well, you're not like this super upbeat, bubbly guy. Like, you don't seem that happy. <laughs> I'm like, well, I can't really show you my, my younger brain versus my older brain and kind of have them side by side. But I do feel like I was in a lot of ways raised in a culture that was, for one, kind of, kind of anti-therapy, and also, it was just like, we don't really talk about difficult conversations. Like, let's just keep everything happy and positive, And we're going to keep a stiff upper lift and like stuff those emotions down. And one of the biggest shifts was realizing that I have to take initiative. And, you know, there's the saying that everything you want in life is on the other end of a difficult conversation. And I had to realize that hey, if nobody else is going, then I'm going to have to be the one to start it, right? I realized that my sister was basically like a stranger to me. I knew almost nothing about her, like what her passions were, what her interests were. And I realized like, well, shit, I'm the older brother. She's going to be looking to me to build a closer connection, right? So that was one of the the biggest the biggest shifts of being more willing to have those conversations and then being surprised when people are actually really delighted that you went there. You know, I've had conversations with family where they're a little bit taken aback at first and they kind of breathe and go, okay, so we're going to have that conversation. <laughs> like, okay, um, well, and, and, I think so often we assume with our families that certain things are off the table and certain things are on the table, right? But it's you have a perspective in this relationship too. We can, we can change our generational trauma, our patterns that we kind of grew up in, that none of this is set in stone. And, and psychedelics have just been such a, a powerful tool to move past what we perceive to be like rules of reality
1: I, and I want to I want to make it clear uh, and and this kind of goes a little bit into the deep end of of metaphysics and all that kind of stuff is like anybody who's listening if you've had similar experiences or have to have or feel like you need to have similar conversations to the ones that Chris is referring to here it's Meditation is a good place to start, right? I mean, if, if even even if you don't expect the, uh, even if you don't accept the the metaphysical of what happens in our minds is actually happening in reality having those hard conversations just through meditation, just in your head and practicing them and working through them moves the emotions through through you, right? It starts the process. Even if you're not actually talking to Chris because Chris was an asshole to you and he got lots of beef with him, just shutting your eyes and working it out in your head is a great place to start. Maybe you do need to have that conversation, right? Maybe you do need to sit down with your sister and have those conversations. And and maybe you don't. I mean, it. You know, I think the important thing to keep in mind is it's like, What's right for one is not necessarily right for the other. And there's lots of ways to go down this path, down these paths in a way that help you get to where hopefully you want to be. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely grateful to you, Chris, for, for going here, uh, and taking the conversation to this place, because I think it's incredibly important and, and we probably don't hit on this nearly enough.
0: Yeah, I think just like I had to uh, come out about psychedelics, you know, I, I think it's been valuable for me to just live my life very publicly because then it feels like no longer like it's a chain around my ankle that I am carrying with me through life, or it's just like this weight off of my chest and my shoulders. And it's like, you know what, this is who I am. This is my life. You can think whatever you want.
1: Well, well again, Chris, thank you. Thank you for for sharing those stories. And I, I mean, I think it's important, like I said, not just because... It gives other people permission to, you know, potentially come out and realize that they've had similar experiences or different experiences, but that conversations, psychedelics, therapies, integration, all this work—it it's all available to them, uh, and it can be a, a place to to start the the shift and 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 the healing. Um, and
0: absolutely, you know, there's one thing I wanted to say about that, which is kind of. At the end of these kind of informal, psychedelic mock therapy sessions I've had with friends, we often kind of reflect the next day and say, yeah, yeah, the substance certainly helped. But also, how often do we just devote an entire day to not thinking about work and setting this intention of doing the deep personal inner work? So, it certainly feels like an amplifier but at the end of the day i mean you can also just take mdma and go to a concert and dance and not have any deep transformative experiences
1: one thing i wanted to go into and and it was it really focused on the conversation that you and i had while in austin uh and you touched on it with with joe rogan uh and your comments actually i'll ask you about that What, what are your thoughts on joe rogan are you a joe rogan fan um do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? And, and how do we evolve that conversation? Because it's a subject of interest to me. There's a great Vox article that went deep on Joe Rogan. Um, You know, and the only thing they could really say about Joe Rogan is that because he's not in a professional journalistic construct, he's not bound by any professional rules or ethics. You know, they pointed out how open-minded and inquisitive is inquisitive he is and how you know he has people from the left and the right, from the scientific to the woo-woo. And it's like he's just asking a lot of questions. And some people think, well, just by asking the questions, you're platforming people. Okay, maybe there's debate there. But you know, he's hard to pin down with the exception of the fact that he is, he has, he has no limitations there's no restrictions on what he can and can't do and, and and that's you know the only thing they could say is really being a challenge of of Joe Rogan but I'd be curious to know your thoughts on on joe rogan
0: i I really hesitate to say that I'm a fan but I am a fan of the show as someone who has listened to I don't know over 300 or 400 hours of the Joe Rogan experience um, I feel like I can often look at it a little bit more objectively than a lot of uh, pundits who try to like write a hit piece about him, which is, you know, often lacking in certain level of nuance. Right. I like the show because I think its strength is also its fault, which is that Joe is not often very tough on his guests and he will just let them talk. So over the course of two three hours, people often very end up revealing themselves, who they are, what their values are. They can bullshit you for 30 minutes to an hour. But after a while, you really start to get a feel for who they are and what their personality is. And so, I listen to Joe for the occasional, you know, great author or scientist or a person who is talking about psychedelics. And he's also somewhat responsible for kind of mainstream shift in public consciousness around psychedelics. So I have to give him a pat on the back for that. But at the end of the day, like content is kind of a marketplace, which has some you know meritocratic elements to it in which Joe is successful because people wanna to listen to it, right? So I feel like it's it's not really for me to either praise or condemn but it's like the marketplace has spoken.
1: That's a, that's an interesting point um and probably one I have to think about more but it feels like in 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 the context of information I'm not sure the market uh, is necessarily the the right determinant because it determines what, determines what people want to hear not not necessarily what needs to be heard or ought to be heard and I don't know who the 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 arbiter of what needs or ought to be heard is but um you know as as a very gross example it's like a lot of people watch pornography right maybe, maybe there's merits porn maybe there's not but you know there's probably a lot more people watching it for destructive reasons than constructive reasons and so it's like again it's a very deep philosophical and political conversation about what you do about that but in the in the marketplace of ideas, oh, as clearly, as we see with Facebook, and, and this is a, a perfect um, extension in social media to my next question. It's not the best ideas that seem to float to the top. It's it it's the ones that appeal to some of the baser elements of what it is to be a human. And so, let me ask this this question, um, which is. One of the things that I've become really focused on over the last few years is the role of media information and narratives um, and their impact on our society as humans. We are meaning-making machines, and psychedelics have an ability to amplify the meaning we attach to our experiences, which explains my interest in, in psychedelics and this conversation. Uh, Last week, I read an article in The Atlantic called Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. And one line in particular stood out to me. Uh, It said, social scientists have identified at least three major forces that collectively bind together successful democracies. They say democracies, I'm editorializing here, I would say societies. Uh, Social capital, meaning extensive social networks with high levels of trust, strong institutions and shared stories. Social media has weakened all three. I, for better or for worse, and, and I may be shooting both of us uh, in the foot or in the head by saying this, kind of lump podcasting into social media. And so I'm curious to know how how you think about that in particular and um, what we do with that. How, how do we take that that statement, which I think probably is, is pretty accurate, and, and do something meaningful with it such that we're not purveying or culpable of weakening those institutions that I think shouldn't, and I'm not saying all institutions should exist or continue to exist, but there are certain institutions that I think we do need to exist. Um, how, how do we stop? How do we make sure that we're not doing that or playing into that? And and it comes up, um, you know, in the conversation around conspira- conspirituality, which I'd like to get to as well. But before we get to get that, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that first question.
0: I think the thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, we handle this kind of unprecedented time we're in with responsibility and with nuance, as both from the creator perspective and from the perspective of the listener. right? I, I think it's it is a scary time in which people who are good at speaking and people who are highly charismatic, and people who elicit anger and, you know, aspirations of wealth are often driving our national conversations right now. And so part of it is up to us as the listeners to kind of like vote with our ears as to what we want to support and, you know, what we care about. But I, I don't You know, maybe this is just the libertarian streak in me as someone who worked for capitalism.com for three years, I come back to personal responsibility. I, I really don't think the solutions are necessarily going to be in government censorship or in private censorship in the form of, you know, companies like Spotify just like banning episodes.
1: Okay, I mean, I I agree. I I I'm I'm very libertarian in the perspective that I think most regulations create more unintended consequences than they do in solving the problems that they're trying to solve in the first place, Um, whether it's it's public or private. Um, So I don't have the answer, Uh, but I think it's just like just having this conversation over and over. Maybe a, a more coherent answer comes up. I think you're right that. The, the truest answer is individual responsibility and people being responsible as in having the ability to respond and and you know have an integrated response, which is integrating thinking and feeling into their response. It's just that most people don't do that.
0: Uh, of course, I, I I don't like personally that Joe Rogan has platformed like Mio Yiannopoulos or that he's platformed Gavin McGinnis, uh, the founder of the Proud Boys which is like a violent terrorist organization that's like extreme right-wing organization. But you know, I don't know, in his defense, part of the charm of the show is just how raw and unscripted it is and that he doesn't do tons of research before people come on the show. And there is something kind of uh, just authentic about that. And that's that's probably part of the reason it's been such a success. Oh,
1: no, that's fair, that's fair. Um, let's talk about conspirituality. First of all, what is it? It was a term that I had heard before. I think actually maybe you introduced it to me when we had breakfast that one day. Uh, But I think it's a a really important um, conversation that was an extension of what we just talked about.
0: Yeah, I would encourage people to check out this Vice News article about conspirituality. Just type that into Google to kind of get a better look at these trends that are happening, particularly like in influencer culture but really, it is just the trend in which spiritual people are becoming more conspiratorial, right? And what's, what's tricky about this is, you know, people with power and money do conspire, right? But it doesn't mean everything is a conspiracy. So, we have a lot of kind of like QAnon-adjacent influencers right now who i think in a lot of ways are expressing a lot of fear and monetizing that fear in order to sell you supplements, snake oil products, retreats, masterminds, getaways. And it's a it's all around a distrust of the WHO, of the CDC, of Fauci. There is I think this tendency, right? So for example, Spiritual people have always had a distrust of big pharma. I think they've always been into homeopathy and natural remedies. And the problem is, you know, just because something is compelling doesn't mean it's necessarily correct. Just because the government has lied to you in many ways your whole life. Just look at the Mark Ultra conspiracy in which the government... Uh, dose people with LSD against their will without their consent. These things do happen. The media, the mainstream media, has lied to you, but that doesn't mean they lie about everything. I mean, are, are 0% of New York Times articles now credible? I worry that we're, we're heading towards kind of a post fact world in which we can no longer have any kind of shared sense of reality. So let me, let me share this quote with you from a Austin, Texas, spiritual influencer, uh, pro-psychedelic, doesn't really matter who said it, because it kind of captures the sentiment that I'm seeing over and over and over and over again. So here's the quote. I've found that anytime the mainstream narrative is preaching and prescribing any particular behavior or value, the best thing is usually to do the exact opposite. Now, I don't know how that lands with you, particularly, Ronan, because I think there's a part of us that goes, yeah, fuck the authority, man. I'm a free thinker. I do my own thing. But you don't have to think about that line of reasoning too too long until you start to see the logical fallacies. And that this is really a simplistic binary way of thinking. CNN says, do this, I'm going to do the opposite. Biden says, do this, I'm going to do the opposite. Um, and so in many ways, it's much like a son who vows to never become like his father. And so he lives the opposite life and makes the opposite choices, but is in many ways still being controlled by his father. So I think, you know, one of the things we're talking about, right, is that I think people's relationship to government and media is very similar to kind of familial dynamics in which a lot of people resist authority figures.
1: Uh, It's funny. This exact conversation came up in my session with Irwin yesterday, which is, you know, if your default reaction and I choose that word carefully uh, to something is the exact opposite of someone else's, you know, my parents were overbearing and too protective. Therefore, I'm going to be Totally, let my kids run free with with no guidance. It's like that. That's not responsible. That's re, uh, that's a reaction. Energetically, it's on the same through line of like no or yes, right? Um, but it's the same energetic uh, of, of what's going on. And and you heard me say it before, which is um, integration. And, and I'm just totally um, um, uh, stealing this from what Erwin said. He probably stole it from Lazarus. Is the integration of thinking and feeling, which is integrate your emotional response, which is like on on one level and, and, and have it mesh up and, and do a deep dive on, on your logical thinking. And, and, and that's the way to get to a responsible answer of what feels right. And what, Sounds right uh, in terms of logical uh, reasoning, and and I have a feeling I know who the influencer is, but I'm I'm not sure. Uh, and it, it's it's certainly problematic. And the problem is is it it is I think we would use the word compelling, right? It can be so compelling and appealing on some levels because. I, I mean, especially, I, listen, I'm guilty of it. Like, I, I'm the first one to admit that I'm generally generally inherently contrarian, but I see it from the perspective of when everyone's going this way, there's opportunity in going this way. Not necessarily that you should run that way as, as a personal life choice. Um, um but it's it's it's, it's scary because it does, and we've talked about it on this podcast a little bit, it creates a post-truth world. And if you can't have any shared beliefs, if you can't even agree on the same set of facts in a given circumstance, how can you have a conversation around it? Um, it becomes impossible. And that leads to the weakening of the institutions that we just talked about and the breakdown of society. And it scares me. It, it really, really scares me. And I have, you know, it's it's one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you. It's like, what do we do about it? The people who have some degree of influence or impact or knowledge of the platforms that are driving it, being social media, where there's no constraint on on truth other than, as you noted, the, the marketplace of ideas, whatever's the most appealing man, whatever's the most appealing or the most you know metadata oriented to get to the top of the algorithms uh, wins. It's terrifying to me, and I I don't know what to do about it.
0: Well, I I definitely don't want to end this podcast on a a sour note. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, or I don't want to throw stones at the people who are really concerned and actually have a lot of really valid concerns about a lot of things that I might label as being overly conspiratorial Because I really think we need people all over the spectrum, right? People who are just kind of the hard-nosed rationalists and people who are more intuitive and feeling and emotional. But, you know, to to bring this back to psychedelics, I think one of the, the profound kind of shifts that personal work and psychedelics can give you is to... Widen that gap between stimulus and response, and not having knee-jerk emotional reaction to any of this, to media, to perspectives that maybe you disagree with. I mean, on this show, uh, you had um, the uh, astrology gals on the show, and I'm not personally a big fan of astrology, but I, I found found it very Interesting to, to understand why it has meant so much to them. Yep. So, you know, there, it's just, as someone who works in media, the trend I'm seeing is, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Tucker Max, who owns Scribe Media. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. And he has started this movement called Doomer Optimism, which is basically kind of just like Prepper 2.0. And I'm seeing this trend of all of the spiritual entrepreneurs becoming more kind of like right-leaning politically and essentially giving up on society and saying, you know what, I want to leave the city, get some land. We're going to start over. We're going to grow our own food. We're going to get a bunch of guns. And to me, I feel like... What would be more effective is for influencers to use their platform to bring about change and work with government and ask more of government than to want to kind of run away and live in the woods under some like libertarian fantasy. But that's just my perspective.
1: Yeah, no, that, that that's fair. I mean... You know, when I, when I talked to Tucker and, and we have touched on, on these conversations a little bit, you know, the, the first thing he says is it's all about sovereignty and individual responsibility. He's like, disagree with me. I don't care. Like, not, not in like a confrontational ways. Like, you do what's right for you and I'm going to do what's right for me. And I think that gets a little bit lost, which is a lot of people like, oh, well, you know, Tucker's doing it. And like, that sounds really good. And it sounds really simple. Um therefore I'm going to do it. It's always harder. <laughs> you know, it's not easy. Um, I think people like Tucker have gone a lot deeper in terms of like actually trying to understand what it really means as opposed to being a default reaction. But that, but that's kind of the problem. And, and, you know, as you were talking, I, I wrote this down, uh, which is everyone knows, or at least mo- most people I know, hope, most people I hope know uh, that if you ever... Get, catch on fire you should stop drop and roll right uh, and when it comes to what I want to call the dumpster fire of media these days maybe the best advice should be to stop think and feel before doing anything else so that's going to be my my, my new go-to which is you know create that space between stimulus and and you said response um yeah, that, that i think that's absolutely the best advice and the most important thing People can do, um, you know, and, and really gut check it and both objectively do some digging, Google it, research it. as also tune into yourself and be like, does that feel right? Uh, you know, th- th- there's always that expression. And I think this perfectly ties back to what you're saying about doomer optimism of like the grass is always greener on the other side until you get to the other side and realize that hey, all of the problems that you supposedly left are still there, at least your interpersonal ones or your personal ones. Um, and everything is going to be more complex uh, mm-hmm. when you actually get there. It's 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 it can be easy, but it's usually not.
0: Well, I I love that. Um, you know, what, one of the things I wanted to ask you is how can I kind of take the next step in supporting field
1: tripping. That's a good question. I, I mean, I think you've done a lot. You've done most, more than most already. You know, writing that review and, and getting it out there and sharing feedback and coming on here—it's like that. That's great. And then, you know, anytime you're um, having conversations with people who you think would benefit from some of the conversations that here that happen on here. I think that, that that's it. I mean, those are the big things. Of course, like if you controlled CNN could get me a primetime slot, you know, that would be great. I'd be happy to go on there. I'll look
0: into it. <laughs> but otherwise,
1: you know, I'm really focused on just doing the grassroots thing, reaching people one person at a time. Uh, you know, one of the things that came up for me, I think it was coming out of a psychedelic experience recently, um, I realize that, like my ambition with field trip and field tripping, is to have a meaningful impact on the world. But when I realize that if I just change one person, like if just one person is changed by virtue—not I change one person—I think that's the wrong way to say. If one person is changed by virtue um, of their experience with me or us or this podcast, then. I've done my job. You know the the rest can happen, uh, and and we'll all start rolling down a hill. I even look at it now, which is like if Field Trip went out of business tomorrow, which it won't. But um, even if it did, it's like we've created a whole ecosystem. Like we've created a whole bunch of snowballs rolling down a hill that are only getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we've already created what I think is going to be a, a massive impact, and that that feels great.
0: All right. Well, I will be listening and supporting. I really do think truths can come out of conversation, right? Just the the history of dialectic, going back to ancient Roman Greece in which opposing ideas can help us arrive upon truth. So I really think this is important, what you're doing. I mean, I really think it is waking a lot of people up. I've shared episodes of this show with friends and family members who maybe have never done psychedelics, but I think maybe, oh, they might be receptive to this one. And it does feel like that is going to ripple outward in ways that we can't even yep, predict.
1: hundred percent. Well, on that note, thank you for doing that. Uh, thank you for coming on this podcast and having this conversation. It's been delightful. I, I, you know, I knew it would be after a conversation in Austin, uh, but I really appreciated this. Thank you for being so vulnerable and thank you for sharing, you know, and, and doing the work you're doing. Uh, directly, indirectly, it's all super powerful. So, so thank you. If you've been listening to this podcast, you'll have heard each of the following quotations come out of my mouth. First, if you're honest, you sooner or later have to confront your values. Then you're forced to separate what is right from what is merely legal. Quote courtesy of Tom Robbins. Second, again from Tom Robbins. Disbelief in magic can force a poor soul into believing in government and business. Finally, also from Tom Robbins. If you take any activity, any art, any discipline, any skill, take it and push it as far as it will go, push it beyond where it has ever been before, push it to the wildest edge of edges, then you force it into the realm of magic. In each of these quotations and me repeating them, you'll find the seeds of someone who believes that there are many aspects of the status quo of our society that need to be questioned or openly challenged. I'm definitely one of those people. Inertia is one of the most powerful forces on the human condition and I find we are often apt to accept things about our lives unquestioningly, accepting them to be truths when they certainly aren't. However, just as when you take any discipline and push it into the realm of magic, you can also, if you aren't careful, push it into the realm of lunacy. And that's exactly what we see with the rise of what Chris calls conspirituality, the default rejection of anything mainstream. At its core, conspirituality, despite attracting many in the psychedelic community, is actually anathema to just about everything I believe psychedelics stand for. A default response to some sort of stimulus is not a response at all, but rather a reaction. Reactions do not involve choice. They live in the realm of our reptilian brains. Responses, however, come from a higher level where we integrate both our emotions and our intellect. While many in the psychedelic context think integration is some form of therapy, that's not quite right. Integration is really all about taking what comes up during a psychedelic experience, which usually resides in the realm of emotion, and integrating it with our intellect and logic to form a coherent and thoughtful response. Anyone – whether the most experienced psychedelic explorer to the newest of psychedelic initiates who reacts to stimulus is missing the very essence of what integration and really the whole psychedelic experience means. And so I invite you next time you find yourself reacting to something, whether it's mainstream or coming out of the mouths of the most ardent conspiritualists to not react, but to stop, gauge your emotions, check your thoughts and respond consciously. Contrary to all the conspiritualists out there, that way lies grace and maybe even glory. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page, and associate producers are Macy Baker, Alex Sherman, and Sharon Bella. Special thanks to our production partner, Quill. And of course, many thanks to Chris Van Loan II for joining us today. Feel free to leave Chris a message with your comments, questions, or just to say hello at chris at